This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 42 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm here with John Ruer, who has been on this podcast before. John is a board member and currently treasurer of the World Beyond War organization and has also been a teacher as well as an emergency room doctor and a member of the Committee to Abolish Nuclear Weapons with Physicians for Social Responsibility. John has also traveled to conflict zones like South Sudan and most recently Ukraine as a worker with Nonviolent Peace Force, which is most of what I want to talk about today. What a fascinating background, and I should also say I know John well because he was my roommate at two anti-war conferences <laughs> in Canada and Ireland. It's great to talk to you again, John. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here with you. You most recently were in Ukraine. I'd love to just start by asking you about that. How did you go to Ukraine? Well, at the start of this war, I thought I need to go there to see what it's like to test all my theories, ideas, and even my prior experience in conflict zones and the meaning of nonviolent resistance in the face of actual bombardment and attack. Not necessarily to be under attack myself, but to be with people who were and how they process this and what they could do, given my idealism and I think a fair bit of empiric evidence about why nonviolent alternatives would be better than war. Getting there uh, took some doing and a lot of time to find the right venue. The philosophy of nonviolence is a big part of, of who you are and what motivates you. Yes, not so much from a philosophical point of view. I, I did start that way. It seemed to be a moral imperative that it was better to try anything other than killing your enemy to solve a problem. Yeah. Uh, but my decades of study and practice in this have uh, reinforced that that the golden rule uh, – treating enemies as uh, loving your enemies and so forth um, isn't just moralistic philosophy. It, it has survival value. And the way that I see the world engaging in war uh, to the point of we're perfectly willing to risk the end of civilization and maybe mankind itself uh, just reinforces that for me, that we've got to find better ways. And we have lots of scientific evidence that, that nonviolent approaches to even the worst conflicts are simply more effective at getting what most people say they want out of a conflict. I completely agree. Um, you, you know, in one sense, what you're saying is reflected in the book, Why Civil Resistance Works by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. And, and it's also basically the message from Martin Luther King to Gandhi to, you know, um, to Jesus and, and many, many others that peace is the way. So let's move from the abstract and philosophical to the, to the actual. How did you managed to do what so many of us, I, I wouldn't even say dream of, but wonder what it would be like to do to actually go to a conflict zone trying to help. Can you? How did that happen? Well, it wasn't just a matter of going to the conflict zone. I was looking for something in particular. I was looking for people who had similar thoughts to what we at World Beyond War have, that almost anything is better than, than war. But you need to work as hard and sacrifice as much for those things as you do for the war effort. And I was looking for people who were doing that. And so it took months to find such a group. And I thought I had found it in the, the, the Peace Action Research and Training Institute of Romania in Petrier, who had been doing peace building work across Europe and the world for the last 20 years. Okay. And they had put all their resources into the six months of uh, war in providing some of the earliest and most effective humanitarian aid in any way they could across the Romanian border into Ukraine. They did fantastic work. And I was invited because of their desire to return to the roots of actual peace building work in, in Ukraine. Hmm. And so I went and prepared with them for a couple of weeks in Romania for not only continuation of humanitarian aid, but to meet with peace actors within in Ukraine. And what, what is this organization again in Romania? It's called Patrier, the Peace Action Research and Training Institute of Romania. Great. Okay. And then what? So uh, while I was in Romania, I got to talk to Ukrainian refugees and was not totally surprised that when I asked what they wanted from my government back home, they all said weapons. Hmm. And I figured, well, I'm just talking to, to some of them. 
And eventually I'll find somebody who's thinking along an alternative line. And actually in the first two and a half weeks, that never happened. Nowhere in Ukraine, no, I mean, nowhere in Romania. And even the groups we were meeting with in Ukraine who had been involved with peace building efforts within Ukraine and, and, is, and had studied things like nonviolent communication and some nonviolent action and so forth, uh, were all feeling totally help, hopeless about any of that making a difference that only more weapons could to give them what they needed. Wow. I, I should interject at, at this moment that another person we work with is our friend Yuri from Kiev, who I have also asked to be on this podcast. And I, I understand being a pacifist in Kiev <laughs> makes Yuri a very busy and in-demand um, voice. Well, I haven't yet gotten Yuri to, to be on, on this podcast to tell us about his life in Ukraine, but we are at World Beyond War we work with the pacifist movement in Ukraine as, as hard to find as it may be. So I just wanted to interject that. When you went to Romania, you said you met Ukrainian refugees. So were you in Bucharest? Were you in a, some type of refugee center? Like what, how did you meet these? I was, was primarily in Inclusion Apoca, which is a beautiful city in Transylvania, uh, 100, 100 and a half kilometers from, from the uh, Ukrainian border. A lovely upscale city with amenities matching anything in the U.S. that I'm aware of. You know, for a former communist country, it was quite pleasant. Highways from there throughout Transylvania, I visited, visited some other towns and, and talked to people who were, were refugees from Ukraine. Now, a lot of the ones I met were uh, people of some means. The folks that could get out of Ukraine the easiest uh, were people with, with, with some means. One of the wonderful things about this refugee crisis, I mean, sending maybe as many as 10 million Ukrainians out of its borders to avoid the war, was uh, for the first time, we don't have massive refugee camps where people are herded into tent, tent uh, villages and so forth. They're, they were absorbed into European society in a beautiful way that should happen with all wars. Uh, and give people the incentive to try to to stop those wars. Uh, but it's very interesting, right there. And I am sort of slowing you down because I really want to. I want to delve into all of these points. So I'm curious, why do you think that difference exists, and what what is what is the Romanian people's relationship to the to the war in Ukraine? I'm sort of I'm asking the Ukraine, the Romanian peoples, rather than the Romanian government, because I really don't care what a government does. I don't know what the people <laughs> right. Well, I, th I think people see Ukrainians as their as their uh, like like people, part of their tribe in a sense. They're they're right on the border. Uh, they look like most Romanians. They talk uh, they talk a little different because there's a Romance language in one and a and a uh, uh, Slavic language in That's another. Right. That's right. Um, and so there's but uh, so many people speak English or or Russian in in Romania that they. Uh, they could talk to a lot of them. So, what, what is the lingua franca there in um, Romania? Between Romania and Ukraine, what, do well, they? Well, Romania speaks Romanian, which is a Romance language. So it was easy for me to translate from what little English and Spanish and French I know, uh, so I could I could make sense of most things. So when you get to Ukraine uh, with the Cyrillic alphabet and and sounds that were really hard for me to reproduce, it was it was much more difficult. So I was happy to meet uh, so many people that spoke English. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, and go on. Uh, so, like you see, you, walking around Romania, you couldn't tell the difference between a Eureka. I couldn't tell the difference between a Ukrainian and a Romanian and the way people looked. Obviously, the way they talked was somewhat different. Uh, yeah. So people felt a great kinship and, and a great, I think, sympathy for folks who were under attack that were so close to their own borders. And they said, well, this is just our duty to take them in. And they did. Now, turns out there is a <clears throat> very different for people of color from 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 Ukraine uh, that were stopped at borders. I didn't see, hear any personal testimonies of that in Romania, but I understand it happened in in many of the other countries that were taking refugees. Is that if you were uh, a person of color, you had a lot more trouble finding solace. Very, very interesting. And J John, I'm really glad you're you're sort of shining a light on something we don't hear much in in my part of the world about Ukraine, which is that it is not only an active war disaster, but it is also a refugee crisis. I mean, I guess that that's quite obvious, as you said, it's millions of of refugees. But I really don't don't hear much reporting about you know, for instance, the difference between 
people of color as refugees and wealthy people as refugees. Um, so I'm, I'm glad and please go on. Well, not only in Romania, and I heard similar stories from Poland and, and Slovenia that taking Ukrainian refugees was seemed very easy and the right thing to do for most people. But within Ukraine, Ukrainians taking in other Ukrainians, which perhaps is less surprising, but was being done everywhere with great vigor and, and great love and, and concern. Uh, can, you, can you help me understand this? Mm -hmm. So there are more safe regions, obviously. You know, I understand that Western Ukraine is obviously less impacted than Eastern Ukraine, which is on the border with Russia. Um, but so w within Ukraine, there are there there is a lot of refugee um, activity. I assume to the safer areas to the west. Is that right? Yeah, exactly, and of course, in within country, they're referred to not as refugees, but as internally displaced persons or IDPs. And there are millions of them, many millions of them within Ukraine. So, in a border town with Romania called uh, Chernivtsi, uh, they had no impact from the war. Been no attacks whatsoever there. But they had in a town of. 250,000, they had almost 100,000 uh, internally displaced people. So it was making things crowded. It was, it's uh, sharing resources uh, is becoming increasingly difficult. <clears throat> I just heard on a webinar I just got off of this morning that <clears throat> international support, humanitarian support to Ukraine has dropped off by almost 70%. Hmm. And there was lots of money for everybody early on. And now there's a lot of stress coming from Oh, the soup kitchens are out of out of extra food. The clothing stores are out of stuff. Um, I, I did not see that when I was there. There seemed to be plenty for everybody, no matter where I went, even within a hundred miles of the front line in in uh, Odessa. Do you think this is because of where you went, or do you think this was a, a reality in most parts? No, reality in most places, because in the opposite extreme to uh, Chernivtsi, I went to Chernihiv, uh, a city north of Kiev that was within a couple dozen miles of the Russian and Belarusian borders where the invasion came from. And they had been attacked early in the war before the Russians were decided to leave. Uh, and so I saw the destruction there that the Russians had caused. Uh, and, and so uh, that, and that was pretty, uh, pretty awful to see and particularly talk to a couple of old women outside of their destroyed apartment building where they had seen their neighbors uh, blown to bits and bodies laid out afterwards looking at us kind of funny and, and somewhat traumatized, asking if we were Russians. And when we assured them what we were doing, they were kind of happy. And In and, other words, uh, they could tell you were not their, their neighbors. And oh, they, yes. They yeah. knew you were from somewhere out of town. Right, right, right. Um, by the way, you know, I, I, because I'm so interested and I'm asking these questions, I kind of knocked you off the timeline. So let, let's go back to Romania and tell us, back from the time you were in Romania, how did you arrange to go further? Well, again, I was invited to be part of this trip into Ukraine that was going to meet with peace groups and talk about peace building in the middle of this war rather than just do more humanitarian aid. Got it. And, the, and you were invited by nonviolent peace force, the organization? Oh, no, no. I, this is, I was invited by Patria. Oh, oh, I see. I'm sorry. Okay, got it. By, that, by the Romanian organization. Okay. Right. Great. Right. Okay, take it from there. So... They have uh, excellent organizers, really energetic young crew. In fact, it was one of the neater uh, peace organizations I've I've seen because it's it's run by a guy with uh, encyclopedic knowledge of, of mm. all things related to peace building and nonviolence, and he's uh, assisted by a crew of oh six or ten enthusiastic young people, most who have advanced degrees in peace studies or doctorates in psychology. Wow, or, what is this person's long. name? Uh, Kai uh, Jacobson. Yeah, I just want to put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, yeah. Great. So he runs this, and uh, like I say, it has this has this amazing uh, knowledge of all things peace building. Uh, but his energies are totally devoted to humanitarian assistance, and peace building activities now seem to have become a matter of how to keep Ukrainian traumatized Ukrainian society uh, coherent within itself and prevent conflicts within Ukrainian society. There really wasn't much talk of how to deal with the uh, trauma of the whole of the war on both sides or ending the war. What kind of conflicts are these? Well, from in, internally between uh, local communities who 
with open arms welcome these millions of internally displaced persons uh, now running out of resources and now under attack themselves, their electricity is going off, their water supply is not as good, and they have to take care of other people uh, in addition to themselves, not to mention you know, how we all have experienced when you invite a stranger to your home, it might go well for a while, but it can be very difficult after a while. I see. So, so we're, you're, we're really talking about individual level, like, like a, per, uh, a family may have invited another family of refugees into their home and there are conflicts. That's the type of thing. Sure, sure. And those conflicts, uh, you know, unless they're, unless they're dealt with with really skilled people in nonviolent communication and other kinds of uh, meditation and so forth, can, can really get worse and worse with time. Well, no, I, I see. There are also societal conflicts, though, like hmm. uh, uh, Russian speakers versus Ukrainian speakers and people who left the country rather than, quote, defend it and now coming back. Right. And differences between people who were in Russian-occupied territory and how did they do so well? Somebody can, can uh, accuse them of cooperating with the Russians or being collaborators. And there are plenty of stories of Ukrainians hurting Ukrainians because they thought they were betrayers or traitors. Or so this, and this is starting to sound more horrifying and more more familiar from other war legacies. Um, when you when you put it this way, you know the the fact that that there might be suspicions. And I also want to state the obvious that there are refugees from from the areas that had. Russian populations of Ukraine as well. And I don't know where are, are these ref, like, in other words, um, I am, and I should say right out, I am absolutely no authority in, in the actual, you know, war going on in between Ukraine and Russia. But I understand that there are many areas where there, where Russians have been forced to leave as well, or I'm sorry, Russian aligned Ukrainians. And, and please correct me, John, I think I'm making a complete mess of, of what <laughs> no, I'm no, saying. No, no, no. What, what you're saying is there's, there's uh, the part of the, this conflict has been going on for eight years. And what looks to me yes. like a civil war, Ukrainians don't want to mention that war at all. They, they think they were invaded in, I mean, they claim they were invaded in 2014. You know, I have to agree with 100% they've been invaded in, in 2022. Yes. But in 2014, it's a little murkier for me because I couldn't get behind Russian lines into the Donbass to talk to enough people. I've seen plenty of videos accusing Ukrainians of, of atrocities that are common to all war. The, the, I did talk to a number of people who had been displaced more than once in the Donbass and then eventually got out who said there used to be lots of love of Russia. In, in the Donbass. I mean, they were just as happy to be an autonomous region under Russia as, as they would have been under Ukraine, who now have no, no pleasure in the Russians at all. I mean, I heard mm. Story after story of the Russians abusing, you know, people by, you know, stealing stuff and so forth um, of, of Russian sympathizers as there were with Ukrainian sympathizers there. So I don't have a good picture of that, except that war is ugly. Yep. Uh, and and it's... so it's hard to say... Uh, how much support there would be for Russia now in the Donbass. And you hear mm -hmm. horror stories of tens of thousands of children being shipped into Russia away from their homes in Ukraine. I, right. I can't speak on that at all because without going there. Right. Okay. So let's keep going with what you can speak of, what you witnessed firsthand. Yeah. So the, the biggest surprise to me was how well everything was going in Certainly uh, Chernivtsi, then Kiev, uh, Chernihiv, where you know, near the Russian border, was a little worse off. But you had to go out of your way to find the destroyed buildings. Most of the city was still intact. And the, the city council was working very hard to uh, repair the damage to electricity and water and so forth and, and getting ready. And everybody was focused on how much they needed more help from international humanitarian aid. Uh, and everybody I met was worried about the coming winter. And that was before all the infrastructure started getting knocked out. We keep hearing about this fear of winter and the energy situation caused by this war. Can you help me understand it in terms of are people actually going to be facing total privation? Um, is it a matter of uncertainty or about what the future holds in terms of this winter? 
or or is there actual certainty that there will be a disaster? Well, in 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 Kiev, and I'll take that as an example because that's where I spent more time than anywhere else. You know, it's a big, beautiful city of three or four million people that had absorbed half a million internally displaced people and was doing very well with that. Uh, the amenities there, people said, please don't send stuff, humanitarian stuff. We need money. Everything is available in Ukraine. The economy looked like it was booming to me in in uh, in, in Kiev anyway. A lot of amenities. I could get anything they want. The only thing, the only uh, things that made you remind you of the war was a curfew. Everything shut down after 11 o'clock at night. Uh, but all the bright lights and glitter and nightclubs and all were going well before now, that. Now, what you just said, John, is so counterintuitive to what I had imagined. I was imagining Kiev to look like a, a bombed city. Um, what about destruction? I mean, we know there has been attacks. There, there have been, but it's a, it's a huge city. And imagine in New York, you know, if 20 places has been bombed, you, you'd have to take a transit somewhere and go look at that particular, particular spot. Okay. And there were theirs. I didn't run to them. And I went quite a bit over, over, over uh, Kiev. More surprising was Odessa much closer to the front line that had been attacked. And again, that city, while had more businesses shut down, you could still pretty much get anything you want from a lovely coffee shop to, to uh, expensive shopping um, was all available. What was different there, of course, was the port. And, and that was totally militarized because I was really looking forward to seeing the Potemkin stairs and, and some mm-hmm. of the, uh, the beautiful seaport. And, and I could only get in bluffs overlooking that. Because oh, of the military really? blockade on the harbor, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you're speaking of the from the famous movie uh, Potemkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so I missed the stairs and some of the other statues and so forth. But I did stay in the Potemkin Hotel. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and uh, by the yeah. way, I visited the Nonviolent Peace Force there. You mentioned that earlier. Yes. Uh, they have been working hard to see what they could do in this particular conflict, and decided their mission is as close to the front lines as possible to help people that no one else is helping. So I am aware of the organization Nonviolent Peace Force. I was not aware of the other organization you've told us about. So so you were sort of bouncing back and forth between two organizations? No, I, I was with Petrier the time I was with Romania. And in the first three or four days, I was in in Ukraine to visit those other cities in Kiev. And then they went back to Lviv, which is the the most western city and the safest place, probably, and and uh, to do more work with humanitarian groups. And by this time, I wanted to meet up with Yuri, our board member, and talk about really nonviolent resistance, and then get as close to the front line as I could. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell, please tell me about entering Ukraine. You know, how uh, what does it involve? Is is it as simple as just crossing a border? It or- is. Um, I've taken longer to get over the Canadian border sometimes. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, coming from Romania with a U.S. passport, it was pretty much just waved through. With, Did people uh, look at you strange? Like, what the hell are you doing here? No, not at all. Not at okay. all. Okay. They it, understood that you were, uh, you know, physician and peacemaker. No, no, they didn't care about any. Uh, American was good <laughs> enough. No visas needed for Americans. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, anybody can go... Uh, as far as I know, to, to Ukraine. And that can be changed, you know, as, as the war gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. But when I went there, it was uh, just like any place else. And our first city was uh, Trinovitsi, which was, you know, it was a gorgeous university town with, again, every amenity you want. They did have some interesting monuments. They would take collections of destroyed Russian military things and build sculptures out of them and have display cases of, of their victories over Russians. I've seen pictures of that. And that is recently, right? Yeah. 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 Because, you know, Ukraine and Russia have much more heritage in common than they do apart, right? There was this horrific things that happened to them in the 1930s under Stalin when uh, the story I understand is the Russians got kind of jealous that Ukraine was much better off. They had better agriculture, better um, economy and so forth that they really tried to steal almost everything they had in, in a couple of years, not only taking the entire grain supply back to Russia, but all the seeds for the next year's planning and their, their monuments of the, the what you know, is referred to the genocide where apparently millions of people died of starvation and, and so forth. Uh, yeah. And this is called the Holodomor. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Is, it, is, is, it, is there a big consciousness of that, um, that you... 
I didn't talk to enough Ukrainians about that. My guess is there is because the the monument is pretty impressive uh, right there near the waterfront in in Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, but right next to that, uh, and you and I took this long walk one day. We walked all afternoon and evening. Um, is this tremendous uh, war museum hmm. uh, where they have all the Russian and Ukrainian tanks and the glorification of them defeating the Nazis together in World War II. Yeah. As we're looking at all this military hardware, there was one tank uh, that was kind of sitting out by itself in an odd direction, and it was pointed at Moscow as a symbolic <laughs> action. Oh, wow. but, uh, but the irony, in, in including one intercontinental ballistic missile, a huge thing uh, that could easily have had a nuclear warhead in it at one time, was on display <laughs> Oh, wow. It was all about everything Russia and Ukraine had done together to win a war. And Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so that right now is quite out of sync with... Yeah, the irony of it is is pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, there's ironies upon ironies. You know, by the way, my grandmother was born near Lviv, or as you call it, Lviv. I just found out from you that Lviv is probably a better pronunciation. <laughs> so, you know, I'm of Jewish American heritage. And, um, you know, from my point of view, what I remember learning is that the, the first atrocities that um, her family experienced was during World War One. And, you know, World War One, there were horrific atrocities in Western Ukraine because of the, the war between Russia and Austria. Much mm-hmm. of the war was fought there. Then there was the Holodomor in the 1930s. Then there was World War II. I mean, so we're talking about legacy upon legacy of, of war and violence, and there must be so many ironies here. Yes, yes. If From my point of view, it seems like the problem is not so much at any given time period the Russians, you know, who had been invaded by Napoleon, been invaded by Hitler and his, their armies. Uh, we concentrate far too much on who the bad guys are and not enough on what the problem is. Yeah. And as you well know, we at World Beyond War know the problem is war. Uh, and, and of course, it's a little more than that. Uh, what, what makes war is just the belief that violence is the final arbiter of conflict. Absolutely. You might want diplomacy. You might want to be a nice person. You might want to have mercy and justice and all that. But, but when it really comes down to being threatened, like the Ukrainians are by the Russians right now, that you want the best weapons and the strongest warriors between you and them, and and just you can feel that viscerally in Ukraine. It just leaves so many blind spots that I don't blame the Ukrainians for not being able to see, but it seems so obvious to me. Um, I just got off a webinar where. All the peace building units people are saying, well, how are we going to deal with all the people in Crimea who, who like, since the Russian complete annexation in 2014, they're eight-year-olds now who have never known anything but being Russian. And when we take them back, how are we going to deal with those people? That was one of the questions on this webinar. Yes, and I think that's a very important question. Yeah. No, no discussion about would it be just take them back and force them to learn Ukrainian, um, considering Crimea was part of Russia much longer than it's ever been part of part of uh, Ukraine. And well, that the Russians aren't going to give it up. It's their only warm Black Sea port. And, you know, they'll, they'll see it as an existential threat to give it up. So, Well, this is a good moment to ask you, John. Um, you know, not nobody has nobody can predict what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or five years from now. Do you have is there inherent in what you're saying some prediction of what you think is going to happen in this war? Um, what do you think is going to happen in this war? With the understanding, of course, that nobody knows what. No, I, I agree, and even speculate. But we can speculate the possibilities, right? There are only there are a limited number of possibilities. The most likely one, because it seems to be the nature of modern warfare, is that it'll just go on for a long period of time yes. in a war of attrition. Right. I mean, Korea has been 70 some years. Some years. We have no interest in ending it, despite yeah, its existential threat and misery. My prediction is that Ukraine will be the next Korea. <clears throat> in other words, forever split um, legacy of hatred and violence that just echoes and echoes and gets worse. <laughs> yeah. Now, the one thing that could overcome that is the Ukrainian spirit is pretty impressive. Uh, Kai says over and over again that in all the conflict and wars he's been involved in, which is quite a few, he's never seen such a spirit of a people, which, you know, 
and, and I saw that too. So there's no way the Russians are going to win this. Uh, the question is, how much destruction are the Ukrainians willing to accept before they're willing to give up something of their dream? And, and, right. and if they never do, then we will have the endless war. And I, I would love to ask some of them, uh, and maybe I need to go back and do this. Well, if, you, if your country ends up looking at you know, the same level of development if, as Afghanistan or Iraq, is that okay? Uh, as long as you're free of Russia or whatever. And what answer... What types of answers did you get to that? Uh, no, I, have, I really haven't been able to propose them because I'm, I'm still in kind of state of shock that mm. among all the peace groups, uh, peace can only come about through war, uh, you know, with a few exceptions being the Ukrainian pacifist movement. Uh, and of course, yes. we're not really talking to lots of expatriates who left because they don't want anything to do with the war. There was a, a study, I wish I could quote the source, uh, that reviewed recently that showed the support for the war in Ukraine is pretty strong, like 80% among people in the Lviv area in the West, mm-hmm. getting down to about 53% of people right on the front line in Mykolaiv. Let me ask you, John, um, <clears throat> what do you think is the root cause of this war? And what, what do you believe the Ukrainians perceive as what they're fighting for? And what do the Russians perceive as what they're fighting for? Well, the main point of my my webinar that I gave, and, and, and I stick to it at this point, the main cause of this war is that's where the money is. Yes. They've done nothing but prepare for war since the Soviet Union broke up and very little in peace. And we, no one should be surprised that that's what we get. You get what you pay for. And the worst outcome of this war, whether say Ukraine wins it totally, they, the Russians somehow tuck their tail between their legs and go home, which would be great, I think. Mm-hmm. But it, all of Europe now is remilitarizing. You know, Germany, which which you know, was fairly pacifist after after right. leading to the slaughter of eighty million people in the twentieth century, is now totally remilitarizing, and everybody's happy with that. I'm not. <laughs> thank you. So many people seem happy with that. Uh, certainly not complaining about it. Uh, and this is all at the cost of meeting hum- human needs everywhere. A corollary to that is that Sweden and Finland have become militaristic. And I've always thought of these, you know, particularly Sweden as such a beacon of, of peaceful talk, peaceful words, at least. Yeah. You know, this is where the Nobel Peace Prize comes from. Um, it, to me, is incomprehensible to think of Sweden as well as Germany, of course, for a completely different light. What is going on? And has this been lurking, you know, this militaristic spirit been lurking in Germany and Sweden? Well, militarism is, is easy to come by as, as Joseph Goebbels, or was it Hermann Goering, one of the great, one of the great German propaganda, Nazi propagandists said, yeah. it's easy and it doesn't matter what government you have. It doesn't matter if you have a democracy, communism, fascism, dictatorships. It's, it's, uh, it's easy to get people to militarize. You tell them they're under attack, condemn the pacifists, and, and they'll follow you anywhere. And this is just one more example of that. Now, in all fairness, when the Russians surrounded Kiev in this war, it was weapons and a lot of support um, and, and their military preparations that were able to drive them away. And so we had this combination of suddenly billions of dollars of new weapons and weapons seeming to, to protect freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's understandable why the Ukrainians think, oh, if we can do that much, we can go on and, and do the rest. Uh, without, I think, analyzing the conflict very carefully. Uh, right. And of course, to win a war, you have to totally demonize your enemy. This is a war of democracy versus authoritarianism. And that's not even close because right now in in Ukraine, it's it's an authoritarian government. That's what a, that's what a military, what do you call it? Um, military law means. Yeah. Um, what is civil life, civil society and government or governance like in Ukraine right now? Well, I'm not an expert on the government. I, I did learn a couple of things of what people on the, that I talk to on the street think. Zelensky is far more popular in the rest of the world, than he, or at least in the West, than he is in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, you know, he was elected uh, on, on a platform that he would bring peace to the Donbass. Right. And what happened about that is somewhat controversial, but I've seen videos where people are actually literally threatening him for trying to, to do that, saying, you know, you'll you and your family would be gone if you, you attempt to do that. I don't know if he buckled to that or, or what, or just to overcome with the brutality of an invasion and just, just said, whatever it takes to get rid of this. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a, 
the, one of the greatest ironies of this war, it's largely being fought over the freedom of Ukraine to determine its own future, including whether it wants to be part of NATO, right? Especially their, their freedom to be part of NATO. And yet yeah. nobody took them seriously as ever having a part of NATO because NATO has certain requirements and, and Ukraine never met any of them. Their, the government and the economic system was considered too corrupt. There was too much wealth inequality. So they weren't going to be part of NATO in any case. And we're fighting this war over their ability to become part of NATO, partly. And that's kind yeah. of sad. And, you know, it, it also just needs to be said. And, that, you know, this mm. is where I do have some history with this. You know, it, it was in 2019, I think, that World Beyond War was one of the leaders of a No to NATO rally in Washington, D.C. that I attended. And, um, you know, to me, to hear that Ukraine, Ukraine's wish was to peacefully join NATO is quite a laughable oxymoron. NATO is a military alliance pointed against Russia. So, you know, the idea that, oh, Ukraine should be free to to join NATO is saying Ukraine should be free to effectively escalate a war against its neighbor. So I've, I'm not yeah. a fan of NATO. I assume you feel the same way. Well, any military alliance, you know, it was... Uh, <clears throat> Just in Annapolis, Maryland, um, and, and reading the story of George Washington, they have a statue of him in the State House because Maryland was the capital of the U.S. for eight months, mm-hmm. and he resigned his commission there. You know, and, and and when he resigned, you know, he made a couple of points about advice for U.S. foreign policy. He said, one, don't ever have a standing army mm. because that will decrease freedom rather than increase freedom, and don't make military alliances. So really? here's this guy we worship. He's on every dollar we spend and totally ignore the best advice he, as, a, as a warrior that he ever gave. I never knew that, John. Yeah. So George Washington said that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking now, of course, of um, another general who became president, Eisenhower, mm-hmm. who also um, <laughs> said, don't let the military industrial complex get mm-hmm. too powerful because they will turn the United States into a, a war empire. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so it's funny that um, Washington and Eisenhower, two U.S. presidents who were generals, are are saying the same thing we say every day at World Beyond War. They were, of course, they say at the end of their careers when what's worshipped is not that advice, but their careers where they're both convinced that Eisenhower saved Europe and Washington saved the U.S., now, we know from a much deeper study of history, certainly in the case of the American Revolution, that that war was probably totally unnecessary to get where we are today. I mean, mm-hmm. As I say, gosh, if, if we hadn't had the American Revolutionary War and all that killing and slaughter and driven 200,000 refu- American refugees to Canada, would we be as bad off as Canada is today? Hmm. They didn't fight a war for their freedom. Yeah. And that's the thing about Ukraine. Ukraine was totally dominated by Russia at one time. Right. Is it really going to be worse dominated by Russia now than it would have been then? And, and I don't know. Only Ukrainians can say that. I'm not going to tell them they should do that. But we know from studies now that once you're occupied, that if you use nonviolence, you're much likely to, to be, uh, win freedom if you use nonviolence rather than violent methods. Uh, yeah. I had great hopes for this, this Ukraine conflict. I thought the, this passion that you feel from every Ukrainian about nobody's going to tell us what to do. We will always have our freedom. It was a fantastic thing. And I thought they had enough experience that maybe they would try something besides war to maintain it. Uh, mm. I'm not sure they were ever given the freedom to do that. Because had we not rushed so many weapons in there, they would have been occupied. But then they could have started the strategy of nonviolent resistance that, you know, is very hard to predict. Uh, would they have gained their freedom again? If we had spent the countless billions on supporting that, supporting people who couldn't stand it and had to leave, um, sending in, in teams of, of uh, tons of humanitarian aid, uh, supporting nonviolent resistance, that's um, never been done in any significant quantity of money or people. Right. Is your perception that, um, and is the Ukrainians' perception that Russia... Russia's goal was to incorporate Ukraine into Russia, because my understanding, which probably aligns more with, with, um, well, I'm not sure where it aligns, but my understanding is that Russia's goal was to secure the the eastern border regions, including Crimea, and to continue the Nord Stream two pipeline, and to basically um, allow Ukraine to exist as a separate nation, but under Russian influence. 
as opposed to absorbing Ukraine into Russia. What's your perception of that? Well, Putin could have done that. He could have been very smart and done that. He, he could have actually not invaded and, and gotten a lot of what he wanted had he been smart. But having, having invaded and taken the Donbass, if he had stuck to that, uh, he probably would be doing better. Well, what about the Nord Stream 2 part of it? Because as I remember, um, the, you know, the, the buildup in opposition to, to this new pipeline between Russia and Germany was very instrumental in this escalation to war. And wasn't it the case, I'm sort of checking my Russian propaganda with you um, because you're a lot closer than me. What I, I, I thought that the conflict over Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, which was going to increase Russia's ability to sell oil and fossil fuels in Europe, mm-hmm. was very much at the center of this rather than a desire to incorporate land into Russia, that it was about fossil fuel economy rather than land grab. I have a friend, Charlotte Dennett, who is a lawyer and an expert, written several books about how every war in modern times is about oil and That's fossil right. fuels. Yeah. And, and so there's strong arguments for that. I would let her make that. What I heard more often was uh, Russian security fears. And, mm. and we've had right. absolutely no strategic empathy for that at all. We've, we've just totally ignored what looks to me like a valid concern that you have nuclear weapons in, in multiple European countries, including some right on our borders, and that's not acceptable to us. Remember, in 1962, the United States was willing to end the civilization with a nuclear war rather than let Russia have missiles in Cuba. Um, that's right. And then we're demanding to do the same on their borders at all time, and they're not supposed to complain about that. You know, that, That's one of the, the great rooms for negotiation to end this war is for the U.S. to put that on the table as we, you know, like as if we needed nuclear weapons in Russia. It's, it's right. more of a provocative position than any kind of strategic advantage. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very valuable what you just said, that the fear of war and the threat of war is one of the greatest escalations to war in history. Um, and that certainly is what happened here. Yeah. And so the missing piece in the peace movement and, and our biggest weakness at World Beyond War, Mark, is, you know, if you look at our alternative global security document, everything to prevent war and mitigate war is in that document. Well, not everything, but it's a, it's a great start, it's a great working thing. You're talking about the book we published. How, how can you accomplish the good things that war supposedly accomplishes in, with other ways? And that's that's disarmament treaties, it's international courts, it's international law. It's massive humanitarian aid to, to take away the causes of war. It's diplomacy. It's, uh, it's uh, so many things. But the, the one thing that's missing is, okay, all that's great if you do it, but clearly in Ukraine, we didn't do it. We did everything wrong. This war was predicted. It was perfectly preventable. We chose either intentionally or through stupidity not to prevent it, and we're here. Then what do you do? And this is where everybody's stuck. Well, we throw out terms like civilian-based defense and nonviolent resistance which I believe are a superior answer to war, but it's a weak position for us because we don't have great examples of where it's worked in the past or right. exactly how it would work now. I went looking for some hope of that in Ukraine and haven't yet found it. I'm still haven't given up, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just smothered in this war fever and the barrage of weaponry. Clearly, if the U.S. stopped sending weapons to Ukraine, they would be much more willing to negotiate some kind of s- solution. This is some real sobering, um, real-world stuff you're, you're bringing us here, John. Well, let me talk about a, a project that I think has some potential to advance our weakness. Okay. To improve upon our weakness. And that is, while I was sitting in Romania, feeling a little discouraged about the lack of support for any kind of nonviolent resistance, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency announces that he's finally, after four months of negotiating, gotten the Russians to allow him, his inspectors, into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. The six-reactor plant, the largest in Europe, one of the 10 largest in the world, to see if it was up to international standards. And when he got there, he said it was in terrible shape, uh, particularly because nuclear power plants need enormous amounts of maintenance. They have to have external power to keep all their nuclear fuel and especially the spent waste cool for right. decades. And if electricity goes out within three days, you have temperatures that cause fires and meltdowns. And 
That's what Chernobyl was. Yes. It was a meltdown of a nuclear power plant that wasn't properly maintained. And kaboom, you have a thousand square miles of uninhabitable territory 37 years later. And that was a pretty new, that was only a couple of years old when that plant went up. This right. has 37 years of spent nuclear fuel laying around in swimming pools, basically inside un unprotected buildings. And, and uh, Rafael Grassi, the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency is screaming, stop this bombing. This is insanity. Don't do this. And he's called for a demilitarized zone around the plant. So I'm thinking, okay, here's these 14 UN inspectors on site behind enemy lines or in an occupied war zone, protecting countless civilians in Europe and Russia from, from disaster if this thing goes up. And I'm thinking... These guys have probably never heard of nonviolent action. They probably never heard of civilian unarmed protection. And they're doing it. They're mm. doing it because it's the yeah. human decent thing to do. The least we can do, those of us who study this as a discipline and have practiced it for the last 40 years in different places around the world, should be jumping all over these guys, helping them. So we have this project now, World Beyond War is sponsoring the Zaporizhian Protection Proposal. And it's to form a team of people trained in unarmed uh, protection techniques, which have been proven to keep people safe in lots of places around the world, uh, to go in under the auspices of the International Atomic Energy Agency and help protect that plant and monitor a, a no conflict, no weapon zone around it. Wow. Yeah. And I do see that. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> sort of feel you clinging to this, to this as good news as something that peace organizations can can do and can show that the spirit of shared humanity still exists. Like, look, if, if this plant blows up, we're all going to, we're all going to suffer. Um, let's find our shared humanity. Let, let me widen that and just point out. Um, I don't think in this pot, in this episode yet, we've used the word ceasefire or the word negotiation. Um, I believe that's how this war needs to end. We don't want, we don't think that um, it would be a good thing to allow this war to grind on until one side is so completely massacred and destroyed that, that there is no war left. Therefore, the only hope is a ceasefire and a negotiation. And let's point out that the human race on planet Earth has ended wars through ceasefires and negotiations for millennia. It's a, well, it's a very well-known way to end a war. You negotiate, you, you speak truthfully, you compromise, and you end the war. So there is a way to end this war, and that is the way. And you know what you're describing at this nuclear power plant may, could be the seed of, of a larger cooperation. Is, is that... Yes, uh, absolutely. Because to win a war, again, you have to demonize your enemy. So in this case, Ukrainians are pretty much forbidden to say anything positive about Russians because you can't effectively win a war if you do. It will end with some kind of ceasefire. Now, it can happen now before the country's destroyed or it can happen when it looks like uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. Uh, uh, plus, it, it'd be a demonstration of what's already on the ground that hasn't gotten much publicity. And that is, yes, you can negotiate with the Russians successfully. They've negotiated prisoner exchanges in multiple times. They've ex uh, grain shipments have resumed out of Ukraine because of, of internationals helping Russia and Ukrainians talk. Uh, so you can negotiate. And the nuclear power plant has had UN inspectors. Uh, and it took so long because these UN inspectors refused to go through Russia to do it, even though they, that would have been easy. And the Russians would have allowed it months earlier. Right. But they insisted because this is Ukrainian territory, a sovereign state that they would go through Ukraine and they talked Putin into that. Yeah. So this would be another huge piece that I think would get a lot of publicity worldwide that might. And, and, and our position is we're not taking sides in the war, although it's very hard because this is, you know, I can see right. the, it's easier to see the Ukrainian perspective, uh, perspective on this, but all we want to do is keep this plant safe because nobody, nobody benefits if it's harmed. And you guys decide who owns the plant by whatever means you choose. That can be negotiations or it could be slaughtering each other. Whichever you choose, that's not our business. Our business is to keep all the people that would be hurt by this plant safe. Well, this is a lot. Um, now, you have spoken of our weakness, you know, in terms of it's, it feels weak to go to a war zone 
and speak of of nonviolent resistance when there is no actual body of people ready to make this nonviolent resistance effective. This isn't just world beyond war's position, but it's really the anti-war movement, you know, is has to struggle with this. And and when you speak of world beyond war's position, you know, I think really world beyond war is very much we tr- we try to be representative of the global anti-war movement. We don't we don't have a one particular position, you know, as much as we try to gather anti-war voices all over the world and thought all over the world. I want to mention that there is an entire other dimension to this, which is that many of us, including me, don't believe that nationhood should be worth fighting a war over. And my answer to how this war should end is that the concept of nationhood to me is archaic and suicidal for the planet Earth. I wish that there were no Ukraine, that there were no Russia, that there were no United States of America, that there were no Israel, that there is no (laughs) Palestine, that there is no China. I would like to be a human being on planet Earth and consider everyone my fellow citizen. Um, That is a whole other that's another discussion, but yes, we're, uh, that, that was certainly the easiest way to get rid of war. Yes. I mean, in my opinion, no, we don't talk much about that path to ending war, but the world right now feels to me like an adult wearing children's clothes. Our <laughs> children's clothes are nations. The idea, to, it's absolutely infantile that I have to describe myself as a citizen of the United States of America as if that makes me different from some other person in the world. The fact that this infantile concept is so powerful and so um, so impactful in our actual lives is just, to me, a symbol of, of how we as human beings are not living up to our potential. We could be so much better if we got rid of the concept of nationhood. That's that's the Mark Elliott Stein believe, you know, theory of yeah, yeah. And of course, you don't want to get rid of a system until you have something better to replace it. And and we need some work on that. Do you have you gotten your world passport through the World Service Authority? I actually haven't, which which shows that that um, this is all definitely speculative at this point. But I do believe that this revol- the revolution to end nationhood could happen faster than anyone realizes. I believe it. It could happen. Um, but, I'd support it. <laughs> thank you, John. We, we've been talking nearly an hour already, and I really want to hear how you would compare this to other experiences that you've had, such as in Sudan. So I had four months in South Sudan with the Nonviolent Peace Force. That's a unarmed civilian protection a group of professionals that trained, trained us. And then you go into conflict areas and stand between or among warring parties and, and try to keep the peace through peaceful means. That was an excellent experience. The dramatic difference between the U.S. and even Ukraine and South Sudan was in South Sudan, everyone had had experienced the downside of war. You Mm -hmm. could almost not meet a South Sudanese who couldn't show you their bullet wound, their machete mark, or tell you a story of how they saw their neighbors running in terror as their village was attacked and burned uh, or had been imprisoned or somehow harmed by war. Now, they were just as unaware of nonviolent alternatives as anybody else. The difference was if you gave a workshop on nonviolent alternatives, they swarmed to it. They liked it. Mm. Why didn't somebody teach us this before? Because they don't worship war as a good in South Sudan. At least I couldn't see that. The elite do, of course, because they're the only ones that benefit. But nobody on the ground, almost nobody liked war. Ukrainians right now you know, are just convinced that their freedom is tied up in winning this war. Uh, even to the point now where Zelensky says even Crimea, which is always, is, uh, you know, yeah, is, yeah. yeah very questionable, uh, has to has to become Ukrainian again. Uh, and in America, war has always been a glorious adventure, you know, that, that makes the world free and democratic, uh, none of which you know, isn't the least bit true. Uh, but people believe that fervently. In South Sudan, they really didn't. So it was really a pleasure to work with people there. That says a lot, John. When were you in South Sudan? In 2019. So you really had a very different experience where war was much more well-known. I mean, that to me, that says a lot about what the future of Ukraine may be as the suffering grinds on. Uh, yeah, generally people who suffer from war are more anxious to get over it than people who glorify it from a distance. 
Well, John, this has been a bracing report from you. Are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share? No, other than to recruit for the Zaporizhian Protection Team. Uh, you know, we may get an audience with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and we still need a few more volunteers to make our offer credible to supplement the great work they're doing. So um, how do you become a volunteer? Go to worldbeyondwar.org, our website, slash zap, for Zaporizhia, Z-A-P slash. I think one thing that might make this episode valuable is it might inspire other people to do the things that you've been doing. How does somebody go about doing that? How would you do what you're doing? Well, find an organization that's doing it and, and join okay. them. So Nonviolent Peace Force is always looking for recruiters. They're working in Ukraine. Again, it's a, it's a totally new field for them and because they can't deal with the armed actors directly. You know, This is a war where the sides are 30 kilometers apart lobbing artillery shells and missiles at each right. other. Right. You can't talk to the Russians. You can't talk to the Ukrainian soldiers very well. Uh, so they're just doing humanitarian relief work and in, in, in putting themselves at risk to do that. Uh, the Zaporizhia protection proposal, on the other hand, is actually asking the militaries to get away and, st and stop the war. And that's much more exciting to me because it's not competing with, for Ukrainian mines where they are convinced the war will give them freedom. Mm -hmm. The war itself endangers everybody here. So you don't have that argument, is, is the military better or is unarmed resistance better? The Ukrainians see. are doing plenty of unarmed resistance, but it's all in support of the war. Nobody's thinking they can free themselves that I met. I bet there are some. I just haven't met them yet. Okay. Yuri may be one. But joining this team gives you the chance to get in the middle of a dangerous place and, and say there's better ways than war. How has your spirit survived this, your belief in what we're doing? How has it survived this experience? Do you still believe what you believed before? Have your beliefs evolved? Well, on, on the one hand, I'm more convinced than ever that war is not the answer. And that yes. it's not Putin that's the problem. And, and this is this is heretical to say right now, but you know, I don't even think Hitler was the problem. You know, Hitler was one guy, Putin is one guy. What all these guys have is millions of young men with arms and women too, with arms, willing to do whatever the leader says. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's what war is about. And we've got to end the easy, how easy it is to convince young people to do horrific things. You can't tell me that most of those Russian soldiers in Ukraine want to be there. They just right. don't. I'm sure they don't. And and we're not addressing that. You know, it's just kill them, which plays exactly into Putin's hands that all the Ukrainians want to do is destroy Russia. And they're going to and, start by destroying you. You can't tell me that all the Ukrainians are are happily making the choice to suffer in the way that they're <laughs> suffering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, John. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, and I do hope others join. You know, when I talk to people about what I do as an anti-war activist, I do find that yeah. so many people wish that they knew a way to do more and people are willing to sacrifice people are willing to risk their safety as you have, but they don't know what door to open to do so right and so every door that gives people a chance to do that and this this new project is one and it, it may not be a door open for all that long so i really encourage people if they're at all interested uh yeah i've gotten volunteers from all over the world it's very very exciting that way thank you for talking to us thank you for what you do thank you mark If you twist and turn away If you tear yourself into a If I could, you know I would If I could, I would let
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.